Welcome back to Behind the Play. My name is Alex Adams, and today I am joined by the one and only Ron McLean, the host of Hockey Night in Canada. Uh, thanks so much, Ron, for for doing this. Uh, uh, I know this is a busy time of year with with the NHL season fast approaching, and ten uh, year old me, uh, you know, watching you as a kid is uh, jumping up in joy, and twenty five year old me as well. So I really appreciate you coming on, Ron, and I hope uh, all is well. Absolutely. All is well. Just saw our buddy, Kyle Bukoskis, because you're in Ottawa, Alex, obviously. So we were talking about Dana and Kyle, who had their amazing wedding in Canmore this summer. And he and I were just together at uh, the Rogers campus in Toronto for publicity photos and promos for the upcoming hockey night season. So, yeah, I always go back to what it was like for me at uh, even younger. I met Bobby Hall came to the Yukon when I was about seven years old. He was an NHL player. It was my first firsthand experience with anything NHL hmm. uh, or TV. So, yeah, it's always nice to to know what I felt like when I was, I, I firmly believe, Alex, when we're 10, 11 is when we kind of set ourselves on the path we're on. So great to be with you. Uh, I want to start a little bit with that, um, just about kind of getting started in the industry. And obviously you've mentioned Bobby Hall. Uh, just when, how did you get started in the industry? I know it's a kind of a, a an interesting story at a radio station in Red Deer. So maybe just tell us a little bit about that. Right. Dad was military. So was mom. But when they married, the rules were back in uh, the late 50s, uh, you couldn't be married in the military. One had to resign. So oh. dad was the one. Uh, we followed him around. Uh, I was born in Zweibrook in Germany, and we lived mm -hmm. in Nova Scotia and Victoria and Whitehorse, Yukon. It's kind of where I fell in love with hockey because mom and dad were both uh, politicos and artisans, but not really sports lovers. Mm. Uh, but a neighbor in Whitehorse, Yukon, when I was roughly five years old, came by and said, Ron, we have a backyard rink across the street. Why don't you join us? And that's how I got into hockey. And then the broadcasting part happened uh, innocently enough in high school in Red Deer. So this is the late 70s, mid to late 70s. We had a radio station in our high school. At noon hour, we would play music and guys would take turns being the DJ. So I did that, and a group of uh, us were involved in the radio station at high school. Three of them were also working part-time at the local radio in Red Deer, CKRD. And they would go down and just push buttons and play reel-to-reel -reel tapes and flip a little toggle switch for station identification and all the things that used to happen on radio. And one day, Sean Sutherland was ill, and he said to Martin Smith, the boss, phone Ron. He will accept the $3 an hour, and uh, it was a nine-hour board shift. And Martin phoned my father, answered, and, you know, Martin Smith, CKRD, I'd like to speak to Ronnie McLean if possible. Dad comes to the back door and says, uh, there's a Martin Smith from CKRD Radio would like to speak to you. And I thought, oh, boy, what did I do last night? You know, was I out <laughs> mashing into cars or something? High school kid, right? But that's what it was about. And I went down, learned how to do the very uh, rudimentary operating. Uh, eventually, I joined the rotation. Now there were four of us from the same high school working weekends, and they got us to read news at midnight on this FM station. We were all brutal. I, I remember, for some <laughs> reason, I remember taking a stab at Seoul, South Korea. And I, I oh, it's no. not a complicated word. It's good for Wordle. But I brutalized Seoul. And, what did you, how did uh, yeah, you say it? I said Seoul or something. or Seoul. Okay. Yeah, I, I went phonetically. And I was probably doing that with uh, many of the leaders of our time uh, and their names. But I, I was good enough that they wanted me to be a DJ on the AM operation, spinning records overnight, still in high school. Wow. And it just snowballed from there. I, I eventually moved up to the noon to four slot on radio. Uh, they offered me full-time position at the end of grade 12, which is where you completed your high school in Red Deer. And when you got 
promoted to noon to four on the radio, you were automatically the TV weather presenter on their supper package. Oh. They had a, an FM, AM, and TV tri-entity. So they would take the noon to four DJ and just anoint them weather person uh, at six in the evening. And I did that and got noticed by John Shannon of Hockey Night in Canada. So that's kind of in a nutshell. At, at that time, were you like in, in Red Deer, did you want to do hockey or what? Or, or, or No, sports in I, I actually tried to avoid it. Carrie, my wife now, was my girlfriend then. But the next door neighbor of the Vasilenic family, Carrie's name is Vasilenic, was Don Drummond, editor of the Red Deer Advocate Sports Section. And he was the kind of guy you could say, uh, like I remember we were, there was a pretty big uh, leadership convention going on with the conservatives. Joe Clark would win in the late seventies uh, mm -hmm. leadership of the P, uh, progressive conservatives, they called it back in the day. And, but I just happened to see Don Drummond on the street next to Kerry's home and said, what do you think of the leadership race? He says, oh, they got to give the captaincy to Gretzky. And I, no, 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 that's, and I thought, you know what, that's how I'll be. I'll end up, you know, socially illiterate. I'll be just focused on sports. So I see my hobby. Yeah. I don't want it to be my livelihood, but eventually they just wore me down and said, look, Ron, you, you really like sports. Um, it's what, you know, you know, it's like uh, Joni Mitchell being taught uh, early in her songwriting career by a prof in Saskatoon, you know, Joni, that was great, but write what you know. And the rest is history. And so it was It was a lucky break that they talked me into doing the uh, supper hour sports. And, uh, you know, I did it without a teleprompter. I was just kind of uh, in my zone. And John Shannon could recognize that from watching. He was in Calgary, headquartered with Hockey Night in Canada. Yeah. And he, he just saw something that, you know, God knows what he saw. Because honestly, Alex, I was a deer in headlights for the longest time. And and I think you probably know, suffered horrible anxiety attacks from yeah. the time I was around 17, 18 till the time I was 35. I would get these onsets of, you know, racing heart and out of breath and sweating and just, yeah, I don't know how in uh, the name I, I made it through those 20 years, but you know, now, and we didn't talk about those things then. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not even sure, sometimes I'm not even sure it helps to talk about those things because it's like a trigger, but you mm -hmm. do learn the biggest lesson uh, that helped me. And I think helps us all is to get out of ourselves. You know, the, the, the dwelling about one's own uh, status or appearance. Uh, if you can break it, you know, the chain of that thinking and get into helping someone else and thinking about why you're there for someone else, always sure. about the other, that seems to be for at least me, a method of coping with that. Going from that, just going to Hockey Night in Canada, talk about, I know everyone wants to know about you and Don Cherry because, you know, you guys worked together for so long. And I know it's an interesting way, kind of like how you got to Hockey Night in Canada, but also to get the role of, you know, working with Don Cherry. Um, just talk a little bit about that. For sure. And, and the, you know, I can remember back to your whole thing about being 25 years old and yakking with Ron and Kyle and you're in the industry and, and uh, fascinated by what makes people tick who are in the industry i used to go down alex in edmonton uh the, the lower concourse of the then northlands coliseum mm -hmm. i would go down when i'd go to an oiler game and i would look at dave hodge and don cherry you know and i was kind of fascinated you know just to see what they were like off camera so you can imagine when i got to toronto what happened is dave hodge accepted a job he was the primary host of hockey night in canada and he accepted a radio position at CKNW in Vancouver. It was big bones, like a six-figure salary and set-for-life mm -hmm. kind of contract that Dave accepted at 41. Dave, you'd have to ask him this, but I think he used to have this feeling, I don't want to get old and gray on Hockey Night in Canada. I would like to sort of move on to something uh, before that happens. Uh, anyway, he had accepted this job, and there was one stipulation. He would continue with Hockey Night in Canada. However, when the Vancouver Canucks were home at the Pacific Coliseum, he wanted to anchor Hockey Night in Vancouver. 
Yes. So CBC needed somebody to handle about 10 to 11 Saturday nights at Maple Leaf Gardens where Canucks were playing out West and the Leafs were playing in Toronto. So I was kind of brought in A, to replace Dave on the Wednesday night Leaf games. They had a regional package of about 25 Leaf broadcasts plus the uh, 10 or 11 Saturday nights at Maple Leaf Gardens. The first uh, game of the year happened to be, there's a game in Vancouver, so Hodge is there. I come in to do Don Cherry in the coach's corner. And I, you know, again, I'm wide-eyed and uh, I've told the story a million times of uh, the producer, Doug Sellers, God love him, has gone now, died playing hockey mm -hmm. at the age of 50. Oh, really yeah. great producer. Uh, Freewheeler. Um, a lot of folks are very buttoned down and, uh, you know, Lego in their approach to producing, not Doug. He was a, uh, all feel and uh, really enjoy huh. to work with for that reason. Anyway, Doug said to me, Ron liked your work on the two years of flames telecast, liked your work as the weatherman in red deer, et cetera. But you have this crazy thing where your eyes are always wandering up and down and all around yeah. the guests. And so try to try to just, you know, not be as noticeable or distracting when the guest in this case, Don is talking. So I riveted my eyes on his and they weren't going to budge. And as you know, when you think about eyes, you start to either flutter or, you know, my <laughs> left eye got watery and this tear started going down my cheek. Now the camera's there. So the folk they can't folks see at it. home can't see it, but Don's looking at me <laughs> thinking, geez, good grief. Is this guy going to ball every time I say I like fighting? And, uh, <laughs> but he saved me. He, he went the whole, like he always did, but he, you know, that was 33 years before the end where he would kind of just take it. And uh, it saved me. And it was, a, you know, I, I woke up the next day expecting to see reviews. Honestly, I think about it, Alex, all the time. If there was Twitter, social media back in the day, that probably would have gotten pointed out. And that mm. would have been a meme. And uh, But it was an innocent time. In fact, when I replaced Dave Hodge full time, it was because Dave had thrown his pen and complained about yeah. not showing overtime in Montreal. There wasn't enough of a... Uh, backlash in terms of immediacy at least people wrote letters to the cbc but he was long gone by the time those got to toronto i see uh, yeah big difference and now everything is kind of an instant referendum i, I want to just ask about i know i know you said in a couple interviews just uh, i find a really interesting way of describing your your relationship with don is like an arranged marriage and two ahl defensemen just yes. describe what was it like what was it like to work total, with them Totally uh, opposite politically in terms of our, uh, you know, Don is very much the individual and I'm, you know, not to uh, stereotype either party in Canada or in the United States, but I think as a general rule, you could say on the right, it's about the rights of an individual on the left. So they, they believe they want to be able to take care of their own money, take care of themselves. You know, they feel their safety in that approach. Uh, on the left, they want to have that safety net. <clears throat> they also want to, you know, pursue careers and, uh, you know, uh, there is status involved, but there's a, a sense that, you know, if I should fall through the cracks, I want this, you know, to have my back. That's the collective approach of, you know, and, and then obviously in every way uh, we shape our laws and our uh, more social mores. Uh, we try to combine the two, the individual rights and the rights of the collective. Very complicated. But Don and I made a good match because we were, you know, always arguing those two sides of the story. Not so much on Hockey Night in Canada. It would come up, but you can't, you know, turn it into a yeah. crossfire. It had to be about hockey. As, and and Don was good at that. You know, Don had his version of hockey, which was, I'd say, carnal. He definitely saw who's courageous, who's not. Uh, and he felt, you know, the <clears throat> especially in his time, intimidation was an incredibly important aspect in the game. So he, he was very good on that front. And... Uh, and then as a relationship, as I said to you, I compared us to, in a way, two AHL defensemen who stick with it for a long haul. 
were uh, also uh, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza out of the you know famous book by Cervantes uh, were kind of out trying to do good deeds, but were kind of messing up each and every time. You know, so many times I would try to be the professorial, uh, you know, well-read guy that's been studying ethics and give him some advice. And he would turn on me and make me look so bad and he would <laughs> take it to a level. Well, I'll give you an example. And then uh, this is, you know, please, I want to, I don't want to trigger anybody because it's an indigenous story. Uh, mm-hmm. But Chris Simon had a 30 game suspension for cross-checking oh. a guy named Ryan Hallwig. And then he came back the second game back. He stomped on Yarko Rutu of the Pittsburgh Penguins, took a skate and basically stepped on him, got a 25 game suspension. And so the question is, how does it, you know, what does that say about supplementary discipline that somebody can receive a 30 game suspension and not be convinced to straighten out, you know, they, they come back and they do something equally bad. And I said, you know, it's potential, you know, Chris uh, grew up in the uh, first nations experience where he he might not have trusted authority. He might not have felt he was going to get a fair shake on, on those kinds of things. And that's why perhaps, you know, it meant nothing to him to receive 30 games and he thought nothing of doing it again. And Don said, uh, what are you saying? Because he's Indian, he's got an inferiority complex. And, and I honestly melted a, like on the spot. Yeah. And I remember, uh, you know, the, the backlash basically was against me in that position. And and I can understand that too. You know, that that's where, when you enter into these uh, hard conversations there, it's all well and good to say that we like hard conversations, but the mm-hmm. minute we try it, <laughs> get ready. So, yeah. And and Don was, you know, he was just like rapier in that sense of uh, his take on the world was instantaneous. You know, there was no four second filter or delay. He he had kind of thought through a, a way that, you know, the, the survival of the fittest uh, and the survival of the individual is paramount. And so that made for a challenging and interesting 33 years. And I think, you know, when we were a CBC show only, uh, there was always going to be in government... Uh, someone who said, yeah, no, he speaks for us. Yeah. When we became Rogers, you know, and they had to be very careful about losing how many customers when you alienate a, a segment of society, you know, it was trickier terrain. And we tried to, you know, I tried, everybody tried to say to Don, you know, this, this is, look, keep on doing what you're doing. If we get it wrong, an apology will be, you know, the, the method to carry on. But Don was, 86 and sick of uh, you know he just apology in don's world was always a sign of weakness and you know mm-hmm. again love him i couldn't talk him out of it and uh and then you know the rest is where we sit here five years later how, how much do you think about kind of your ta- time with don cherry and, and well, what happened and yes i don't i do and i don't alex you know the, the one thing is, is i was always a a, a dj at heart my, my my basic approach to the industry was to try and make someone's day Mm. Uh, I thought I had, uh, it was almost like being a doctor without that, you know, training. Uh, you, you were going to be in a line of work that was, uh, entertaining, educational, you know, you see it in Kyle Bacoskis and how he's, yeah. been, uh, he t- tells stories. Well, yeah, you know, but, but his <laughs> storytelling is, his, yeah. is his thing. Right. And, uh, and I'm that same way. Uh, so I mean, I, I did so many Olympics, so many world track and fields, so many Commonwealth games, closed Maple Leaf Gardens, did Canada Day on Parliament Hill several times, you know, stampede. And I mean, I, a lot of my life was not with Don, you know, he was, he was, (laughs) we always treated everything uh, like we were in a show together. We were great colleagues, but my first and 
only thought or consideration always or ultimately will be to a viewer, mm-hmm. one viewer. Um, and that's that's how you kind of have to approach this. I, I want to ask you, because you said something interesting about how kind of the, the era of anchors is kind of passing by and now it's about panels. And obviously you host a panel on Hockey Night in Canada. How do you find a way to entertain the viewer, but also let them... kind of have everyone talk and make it seamless and entertaining at the same time. Not easy. Uh, And I think, you know, like when you had uh, George Strombolopoulos try Hockey Night in Canada, had they allowed George to do his, what he's great at, interviews, one-to-one, you know, I think George would have sung. But uh, they didn't give him that chance. And and the reason they're going basically with panels everywhere on television is couple of things you know representation it's an easy way to ensure that there's lots of different voices coming to the uh yes. thought or thread but the other thing is they don't want uh a, what's called an anchor monster they don't want the power of that individual uh who who becomes bigger than the network bigger than the boss uh that that is the uh you know i think american television you know with whether it was tucker carlson or uh in the day chris cuomo and don lemon had the run of the evening shows mm-hmm. you know those were that was that was the traditional approach one-to-one communication with a viewer that creates a relationship uh creates companionship which is ultimately the core of radio and tv so when you have a, a symphony um that isn't really what makes those uh mediums successful but it's a safer corporate approach. And uh, mm. yeah, so it, it avoids that pratfall of, you know, Don's bigger than we, we have no way to control this phenomena because he's appointment television, which yeah. I mean, great. We, we yeah. need appointment television. <laughs> that's, that's sort of the idea, but it's uh, th- that's where we're at now. That said, you know, wh- to your question uh, for sure, I'll tell you when uh, Gord Downey and the tragically hip did their final tour, first mm-hmm. stop was in Victoria. And I was there, luckily, just before the Rio Olympics and with Carrie, my wife, and some friends. And we were watching the concert with the doctor, who was, you know, his mm. oncologist. Uh, and he was explaining to us how uh, Robbie Baker had a, a guitar stand. And if he placed a guitar on that particular stand, that was an indication that Gord was having a tough time get mm. down here. So there was a side drama going on to the whole thing. Anyway, it went off unbelievably well Gord was incredible hip were incredible after the show we're back at the empress hotel in victoria and now i'm standing at the bar with Gord, and i think shouldn't you get to bed like you're you know kind of going through a lot here but him and his brother patrick and Gord couldn't remember his own song lyrics at that point he had to use the teleprompter for his song lyrics because of the brain cancer of course but he he said to me well ron it's gonna be i was coming back George Strombolopoulos after two years, uh, they wanted me to kind of be the principal guy at Hockey Night again. So we were discussing that and Gord brought it up and he said, and Ron, you'll be, as long as you elevate Nick, Kelly and Elliot, that was the panel at that time, Nick Kiprios, Kelly, Rudy and Elliot Friedman. As long as you elevate those guys, it'll be great. And that's the same message, the exact same message I received in radio way back in the seventies from Wayne Heinrich, who said, let your guest be the star. So you, you do have to, as a host, but if you have, uh, and my wit can get me in trouble, of course, and my uh, points of view can get me in trouble. So you you want to know when to jump in with a quip to relax everybody so that they feel empowered to be loose themselves. And you also want to uh, challenge them, you know, so that you bring out the best in them. Uh, like as an example with Gary Bettman, you know, the harder the interview, the better the chance that he will be able to showcase his wares. 
yeah. you didn't always see it that way, but it, that was the point of it all. You know, you yeah. know, there's nobody wiser, more well-informed, more inside on this subject than you, Gary. Now here goes, tackle this question and, and you can handle it. You, you should be able to handle it in your sleep. Uh, so you, you want to be a mix of all those things. And Alex, it's a, it's like biorhythms. It's there for you. Some days you're, you're intuitive. You're absolutely uh, able to, you're, you have the gift of concision. It's a quick comment that, you know, sparks the debate. Some days you're just laboring. Uh, you're thick and uh, your experience teaches you to kind of recognize like a coach, knowing what guys are going on the ice, yeah. you know, you kind of figure out pretty quick in the day. I don't have it today. So when did you, when, when would you say you kind of learned that at the same time? And, and I know well, you, said- you never master that. Let me just start with that. Okay. You, you know, to this day, I have bad shows and uh, bad days. Uh, but I, I was again, you know, through, uh, through experience, uh, I realized all the things, you know, all the, all the dwelling, you know, within the head that, that gets you in trouble, you know, a fear of a, of a pronunciation of a name. If you're really hooked on the pronunciation of a name, guaranteed you'll screw up the word just before the name, you know, mm-hmm. you, you, your, your mind takes you right out of the flow and into a, a spot down the line. And when you're thinking ahead, you know, I don't know what's worse thinking, but thinking about the past and do dwelling on it or thinking ahead. I think thinking ahead is worse. So you just mm-hmm. slowly, slowly come to that realization as to, you know, breathe and, uh, and proceed. If you do hatch it, a, a word or a name, fix it as best you can. And, you know, however long it takes and no big deal. That's, that's so human. It's, it's, you know, inconceivable that we beat ourselves up to the extent we do, but everybody thinks, well, wow, there's a, uh, 12 people who know how to drive that race car and I don't, you know, I got to learn how to yeah, yeah no. race car, you know, uh, what, what I find interesting that you said, you mentioned Bettman and, and uh, I know you have an annual interview with him. That's uh, you alluded to. I want to ask not just with Bettman, um, but what's your kind of style to, to go into interviews? I know you talked about flow and yeah, kind yeah. of sometimes you have Prep. a bad day. Prep. All preparation, yeah, like you would have done to, you know, get set for this. You 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 read extensively, you listen extensively to things that were said. And then in the case of what what kind of took us uh, out of where I thought we were at our best was when we were debating players' rights and uh, the salary mm-hmm. cap. Yeah. I, I am vehemently opposed to the uh, implementation of the salary cap. I understand it's created parity. Having said that, it hasn't helped a Canadian team in a smaller market win a Stanley Cup. So that's all a fallacy. Um, but, you know, it was about uh, the right. Again, now I was the one arguing the rights of an individual on that. Uh, yeah. I just felt the players capped four ways when they join a team. Maximum salary for themselves, maximum salary within the cap, you know, uh, and they have the entry level contracts and all these different things they're drafted. Uh, their rights are really, you know, Connor McDavid makes 12 million. Every other sport, the top player is 50 million. Make more. Yeah. Yeah. It's way below market value. Uh, you, you ultimately what you receive should be either your ability to put bums in seats or whatever the next best offer for your services would be. That said, there are some artificial wedges, uh, you know, so Gary could argue that back. Um, but that's gone. Like with the union folding in 2006, as it did, um, the greatest debate, the one that, you know, we we could really, I could educate myself on. I used to go down to Ann Arbor and sit with Rod Ford, a professor of economics, and just go through this. And not just Rod, I would study with uh, Marvin Miller, 
Mm-hmm. Last interview of his life, you know, a whole yeah. different ball game is the story of the establishment of the Major League Baseball Union. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would talk with all those sources and then it was Gary and, and Ron, you know, and it was great. Now it's, uh, you know, like, let's just say for the sake of argument, we were, we're discussing Kyle Beach and, uh, yeah. you know, the tragedy of that situation. Well, now it's a whole different thing because now Gary gets to be a spokesperson for uh, for the National Hockey League. And I don't feel comfortable that he gets that yeah. opportunity. Yeah. You know, that, that is not, I don't want, I don't feel comfortable taking a, a legal issue and giving them the opportunity to, to voice their opinion, sway public opinion, uh, influence courts and police. Uh, very dangerous to, to do, enter do into that conversation. The, do you feel the same way about like the, the sexual assault allegations with the world, world junior, junior team? team? Right. You, who gets to speak to that? It's very important, I think, as a journalist to know who has the right to speak to that particular situation. Obviously, everybody connected with the team does get the right to speak to that. Yeah. But heads of heads of organizations, no. That that's uh, I would I would say you're better off to uh, approach you know Allison Forsyth, who's an expert on this uh, subject. Um, I think I think you need to take a. A kind of a nonpartisan approach to to the topic, uh, and don't allow uh, a defense from uh, stakeholders. It's very very interesting, you know, uh, conundrum because you know you think they're the source, but clearly they're going to protect their interests. So you know that that's the question you always like. Mm. It kind of is goes back to Woodward and Bernstein and uh, mm. Mark Felt and the uh, yeah. you know, Watergate scandal. Uh, they were held up as pantheons. Uh, of journalism that's not the word i'm looking for there anyway yeah i'm sure you could yeah you could say pantheons like the leaders yeah so they they broke that story but it was a story broken for the express purpose of getting at the republicans you know there was a method behind it and so without identifying the source we could never ask you know how did you know who you know ultimately uh Mm-hmm. did the damage uh it's, it's a, that whole thing about sources and uh whether they should be revealed is it's because it's almost tantamount to a non-disclosure agreement yep the minute yep. you seal off uh the flow of information is the minute you can't really trust it i i want to go off that i wasn't expecting to go down this road yeah. but i think i think we should just this is my last one on, on this kind of but where do you see because i've talked to people like David Han- Amber, who obviously you know well, and others yeah. last year more or less when there was the sexual assault allegations and, and Cal Beach. But where do you see the the state of hockey right now in terms of maybe like the culture, really? Yeah, I, I don't think the culture is broken. I, I think, you know, look, uh, we are going through an incredible time in society uh, from hashtag me Too to Black Lives Matter to Truth and Reconciliation, all forms of social advancement, awareness, uh, learning to see how others have lived and with what, you know, and, and learning. Sheldon Kennedy was, a, you know, in case I'm sure uh, David Amber would have brought up Know My Name by uh, Chanel mm-hmm. Miller is the story of a, a rape case, uh, incredible book. Uh, I've got Anita Hill uh, up on the bookshelf here. I got a million books on that whole topic. Um, but these are all, you know, this is a hard one um, situation we're in. Uh, we are challenging status quo. We are challenging the life as we knew it, um, but it has to be done. I don't know if it has to be done Saturday nights on hockey night in Canada. That's mm-hmm. the, that's the challenge. Um, but I do think you almost bear a responsibility when you have a flagship show, when you have a, you know, 
kind of a every element of society uh, involved in this, you know, and it's a, a sit down, we're all in front of the TV on a Saturday night or a playoff night. Um, as long as it isn't too heavy handed or, you know, it's too preachy. Um, I think it's really important uh, to, to go there. Uh, but just as I said to you earlier, Alex, is how do we go there? You know, who you think you're going to the, uh, the voice of expertise uh, in say, the commissioner or the head of hockey Canada, or you're not, you, you know, you need to go outside the box on that. You need to get to, uh, and this is even complicated because, you know, I would have said in the past, you go to the police or the judiciary. Um, uh, I, I would say, yeah, sure. There's challenges there. Uh, there yeah. There's, you know, the, there's a lot of uh, right now angst about the state of the Supreme court in the United States. And uh, mm. you know, whether this is ultimately uh, right from wrong as Dershowitz would say. So, you we're really learning right now how to best uh, approach these really difficult subjects, but, it, but it's, it's universal to society. Back to your point about hockey. It's not just a hockey, you know, no. and that, that sounds like an exoneration or broad exoneration. Uh, but I, I think, I believe, um, you know, hockey, like anything else, when it's, when something is that popular, um, it sort of bears the, you know, responsibility. It is the lightning rod, of any given topic. Uh, so in our country, it's a, uh, it can be a great torchbearer. And as such, we should, you know, try our best to, to be informed and hockey Canada just had their summit, um, you know, and, and their basic uh, first summit was about hyper masculinity. They build mm -hmm. it as toxic masculinity, but realize toxics, that's too hard a word that yeah. alienates every man in the audience, supposedly. Uh, so, finding the way to communicate these ideas and uh, it's just going to require learning upon learning. Uh, but I think in the end, as I say, it'll be a hard fought one uh, battle that we should fight and should try to win. Well, from one uh, kind of tough situation to one tough uh, job, and that's being a referee. And I know that you were a referee for a long time. You, uh, if people don't know, you were a referee in an NHL preseason game which is pretty cool. Um, what was that like? And and maybe how do you feel about uh, kind of how the, there's a lot of criticism towards referees, especially in this day and age with social media. How do you feel about that? And, and maybe just tell us what your experience was like being a referee. Well, I worked the game with Steve Wacom, who was the director of officiating. We went in at the start of the second period. So I did the second period, third period and overtime. And uh, lots of things struck me. Uh, you know, I was on the ice with Sidney Crosby. Uh, yep. So I wish I had a nice photo of myself dropping the puck between Danny Briere and Sidney Crosby. But a funny story about that is start of the second period, Crosby comes to Briere to line up at the dot and says to Danny Briere, five bucks. So they placed a bet over the draw who would win that draw. Very funny. <laughs> That's fine. Um, I made a terrible call, you know, to try and buy into their system of calling everything that moved. I hated it. I, I was a let him play referee and those days are gone. I found it's two man system. So you skated primarily backwards. You were waiting mm -hmm. in the neutral zone for the play to come your way. And instead of in the old days where I'd be caught by the goal and tried to race the 200 feet to stay with the play and you needed to be a really good skater. Now you were kind of drifting in center ice and then you had to be backwards skating into the zone and really good at backwards, uh, quick moves to get out of the corner when the play came your way. Um, but yeah, that's again, that's, uh, you know, this, the referee is the one person like the judiciary, like the police, um, in, yeah. a, in an ideal world, they're the, they're the one non-vested interest out there. Everyone else from fan to player to coach, you know, they all have a, a particular That's point it. of view based on winning for themselves, you know, selfish. 
uh, I loved the training of refereeing for that. You know, it's very good training for broadcasting is to sort of see a, a altruistic purpose um, to facilitate fairness, uh, mm. to uh, enable or uh, elevate the state of the game by uh, by creating just that right, you know, back to our conversation about what makes for a good panel conversation. You do have a role to play by knowing when to put the whistle away, whether people want to believe it or not. Uh, you know, the, the the perfect referee is the one who senses, okay, safety scoring chance was compromised. That, that's got to be a penalty. But after that, and sometimes you do in the early going set, uh, you know, uh, an example with one call just to allow them to know you're there. Uh, to prevent anarchy but it's uh with two referees how do you get that right i always liken it how would it be if there was two umpires behind home plate i'd love yeah. to see you know what the two calls would be uh, so, how, so how, of often, how often i guess were you doing two referees like in when you were refereeing it was no, always no. one okay because yeah. i always want i always wonder how much referees look at each other and, and see who makes <laughs> who puts their sure. hand up or like the kind sure. of indecision and all of that you, you know, you, you got to say to yourself in the 82nd game of the year when the playoff assignments are about to be made and, uh, you know, a call is made right in front of the one. Now, I, I always point this out. The, the referee down by the play has to watch the puck because he, he's the one looking for uh, high sticks. Uh, he's the one looking for it going in. Uh, it's the referee in the neutral zone who's got a wider view of, and, and mm -hmm. actually the referee in the neutral zone takes the slot. That's his first priority. So, the, you know, the penalty will be made from 90 feet away and it, everybody's up in arms. Yeah, well, the guy right there didn't see it. No, because the guy right there is more specifically focused on the puck. Um, but anyway, it's uh, it, it leads to some, you know, sense of embarrassment when you're the referee right there and the guy 90 feet away makes the call on you. Um, you, you have to learn and they talk about it endlessly. You know, you're a team and everybody's free like you know to to the, make a call so no hard feelings it's not making you look bad when somebody makes a call right on your doorstep it's it's got to be that way that's the purpose of two referees what, what would you say um to transition back to just your broadcasting career what would be like a couple memories or a story that really stands out for you i'm, I'm sure you have plenty and and remember them all uh very vividly but uh is there one with either don cherry or the nhl i know you have one with batman uh, yeah in in the 99 year that's uh, a great story of course okay that's go, the, go yeah, for so it I'll, then. I'll tell that one uh and this is a uh, don and i had worked the buffalo toronto third round series that ended in five games and we came home supposedly for a weekend off because the Colorado Dallas series was ongoing, but Scott Russell was anchoring for mm -hmm. CBC and we thought we were home and cool. Don and I, we'd have three days off. No, the phone rings. We need you down there. It's a Saturday night. Uh, you know, the long weekend, uh, we would love you to May two, four. We we'd like you on the show. So we'll just do coach's corner. Uh, but Ron, you'll host, uh, Scott will become the ringside reporter. So we get on a plane on game day, Saturday, fly down to Dallas, Texas. Don goes to the hotel to get his suit ready. I go right to the rink and Scott Russell's already there. And he points out, he's got this device. Let's say it's this mouse. He says, that's a Humidex, Ron. And he says, uh, the big issue here is the relative humidity. Um, when you go on the air, I, what I've been doing is I just press this red button and it indicates the RH. And uh, if the relative humidity is 95% or higher, it's a real problem for Dan Craig, the ice maker. So 
I go on the TV and, uh, you know, good evening. Welcome to game seven. Uh, the one big storyline here is the conditions of the ice surface at reunion arena. It's an old rink. It's 104 degrees today in Dallas down by the tarmac around the rink. It's closer to 140, if you can imagine. So what they've done, uh, is they've put <laughs> some air ventilation ducts in the ceiling and they've opened all the vomitory exits four inches. They've cooled the ice uh, by an extra degree. But if the relative humidity happens to be higher than 95, none of that will matter. So here we go. And I press the red button and uh, it's 99. <laughs> so I said, well, that's a that's a very uh, serious situation. We could have a, a problem by the time we reach the third period tonight. In any event, here's a feature now on the late, great Rocket Richard. And as soon as I threw to the feature, Gary Bettman, commissioner of the NHL, was in that Zamboni area. He comes rushing over to me. Ron, why do you have to be so negative? <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, come to think of it, he's right. I don't know why. I just came down off an airplane and I was told to talk about the RH. I wasn't really thinking of it through. Uh, but anyway, I argued back and forth with Bettman, as we always did. Two banters, <clears throat> one at it. And now I go to the dressing room. We finish the pregame. I go into the little dressing room where Don Cherry is waiting to do his coach's corner. That's all he's doing that night. So he's with the boss. Alan Clark was his name. And uh, I go into the room and I said, uh, wow, Gary Bettman was hot at me for uh, talking about the ice conditions and don says oh is that right would you like a coffee and i said yeah i'd love a coffee black would be great so he goes and gets me a coffee and that's the last we talk about that now we get on the air coach's corner the red light on the camera goes on and don you know hold it before we get rolling here a little something i gotta get off my chest uh you know a smart guy here you 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 you're a wise guy you think you know everything well here's a couple of things ron you don't know number one they just come out of Denver, Colorado the other night. Uh, I made hockey in Denver, of course. But anyway, just come out of Colorado. Do you know how many consecutive sellouts? No, you don't, wise guy. You don't know how many, do you? 350 consecutive sellouts in Denver. Unbelievable. Come down here for Game 7. It's ESPN, just said in the USA Today. It's the most watched hockey series in history. Did you know that? You know, you didn't know that, did you? And uh, I bet you didn't know we got Waugh versus Belfour. We got Sakic versus Medano. We've got a long weekend in Canada. It's a Saturday night. One game winner take all for the right to go to the Stanley Cup. Everybody's in a good mood except you, Ron. Oh, no. Ron from Red River. You got to stand there with your stupid little thermometer and try and ruin it for everybody. Can't you just give it a rest? And I knew he had me, right? It was the greatest little uh, put on. So as soon as we did the end of the coach's corner, in comes Gary Bettman, walks right through the door of our dressing room. And, Thank you, Don. Thank you, Don. You know, it is so funny. That 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 is a great memory. And I just remember Grapes had a lime green suit. He was coming down the uh, atrium. Uh, it was an elevator in the atrium at our hotel. And everybody in the hotel is looking at this guy. Who is he? <laughs> those Those were fun times for sure. Um, I want I ask a lot of uh, hockey people on this on the show what they do if they were the commissioner for the day. And obviously, you know, Bettman, as you just talked about, what rule would you change if you were Gary Bettman for one day? Uh, I should have the answer to that. I mean, I don't like the trapezoid, so I'd let goalies go out there and uh, fend for themselves in their own zone. That's okay. one I'd immediately ixnay. Um, I think after that. Uh, not, there's not a ton I would change. No, I, I think that's okay. probably the only one that jumps out at me. Right and now. maybe uh, maybe the salary cap. That's that's the one. Oh, uh, for sure. I, I'm opposed to the cap. You know, I would like to have a luxury, uh, at least a luxury for the top Facts. player on your payroll. Um, I would I would like you know the Leafs and all these teams they they hire you know when they when they drafted uh, last year they must have had 50 people on stage. They employ <laughs> you know so many people. 
so they're spending the money and you could say wisely, but it's like the Toronto Blue Jays, you know, and, and oh. all those analytics experts that, uh, yeah, well, that's the first time that's two years in a row for Toronto. And I remember when, uh, Pat Cash took his pitcher out, uh, and cost Tampa a couple of years ago, I remember saying to Kyle Dubas, it would have set analytics back a hundred years. And he went after me, Kyle was a proponent of the analytics and the, you know, got to follow that. So it's an inch, that's an interesting debate, but it's kind of yeah. outside my realm. Um, I want to ask, uh, you know, maybe why Kyle Dubas and so many other Canadian G- GMs have failed to win a Stanley Cup in, in 30 years. Why, why do you think like some of the factors are for that? Well, you know, in, in the case of 04, the Flames, 06, the Oilers, 2011, Kevin's uh, team, uh, the Vancouver Canucks, Kevin Bieksa. I mean, they lost Dan Hamuse and they were that close. They led the NHL in every category, much like Boston was a runaway yeah. leader of everything last year and they lost. Um, pressure seems to be uh, daunting to me. Uh, when you're the Canadian team, you become like the Blue Jays, uh, Canada's team, and you've got the weight of that, uh, whether you know it or not. That seems to be a factor. Obviously, it's hard to attract free agents. You know, the, the tax laws are so favorable in the United States. That said, the Canadian dollar is usually weaker. So when you're making your $12 million in Edmonton, your cost of living is, is different. It's better. Um, you're using U.S. dollars to buy Canadian product. At Canadian value, but I, yeah, I, I, I think that's probably uh, two of the things I think about the most is uh, hard to attract. Uh, the The free agent has a choice. Uh, they tend to go. That's why Edmonton was so lucky and fortunate to pick up Matthias Ekholm. That that was a just a great, great get. Um, that doesn't happen that often. Do you, do you have a favorite Canadian team going into this year? Is it? Oh, Edmonton for sure. Yeah, okay. I, I think Edmonton's right on the cusp. I think they had to sit with that. Uh, you know, Oof. a lot of things about it. There was it was a team that was two points ahead of them on the in the standings. Vegas was a amazing road team. They only lost seven in regulation on the road last year, and that's always a sign. You know, and and it's interesting with Edmonton. Uh, Jack Campbell's a very good road goalie. He has struggled in his own rink. Uh, so they're, they're up against it trying to figure out, okay, is Stuart the guy or is Jack the guy? Jack Jack can win you those road games, which are, I think, uh, always a harbinger of whether you're going to win the Stanley Cup. If you're a good regular season road team, get ready. They'll be good. Dallas was, uh, a few others. Uh, Boston obviously was. Um, they they sat with the Petrangelo slash. They sat with the loss. They, you know, in, in the end, they're probably saying to themselves, okay, I love Jonathan Marshall, but is he better than Connor McDavid? No. Uh, is William Carlson better than Leon Dreisaitl? No. Like, this can't happen. We can beat these guys. They, they've got to be thinking that way. And uh, that ha- that just had happened to Detroit. They had an incredible team, but they had to keep fumbling until finally they got so mad about it that, uh, you know, you just weren't going to stop them. So I think Edmonton is my my favorite. Just to go off that one, I would love to see uh, an NHL team just play a tandem of Jack Campbell on the road and Stuart Skinner at home. That'd be pretty funny and and cool to see. Um, I'd love that story. Uh, On goaltending, Ron, just it feels as though goaltending feels like obviously uh, Aiden Hill won the Stanley Cup as a starter. Um, Do you do you think goaltending is a bit of voodoo or or do you think there's like well? I think if you have a team like Toronto, you have to have a great goalie because their defense isn't strong enough to, you know, withstand. Like when, uh, when Edmonton was the Edmonton eventually had a great defense, you know, I mean, you look at that 79 draft, they got, of course, Kevin Lowe first, then Messi and Anderson, but they also signed Charlie Huddy as a free agent. So almost from the get-go, they had a good defense. They had Lee Fogelin, a a stalwart uh, veteran who led them. They brought in Randy Gregg, big, massive, you know, well-educated, incredible defenseman. Yeah. Doctor. 
Don Jackson, another university guy. It's interesting, in the Battle of Alberta back in the 80s, Calgary in 84-85, my rookie season, they had 11 NCAA Division I players. That's oh 1984. Gosh. Shocking. Yeah, that, that, they oh. discovered in the, especially ECAC, they discovered the talent pool that any, ultimately Kenny Holland and uh, Hawken Anderson would find in Sweden that emboldened Detroit. And mm-hmm. Edmonton had six NCAA Division I players. You know, Don Jackson was there. Glenn Anderson was there. Dave Lomley was Division One. Pat Hughes was Division One. They had Randy Gregg was obviously University of Alberta. Gord Shervin was Division One. So they had a they had found a, a way to to elevate their game through scouting college hockey. That's way ahead of the time. It's now you know very commonplace, but it was a it was a big advantage. And then as far as goaltending goes, and whether it's Voodoo or not, I think Toronto needs Grant Fuhrer, just the way Edmonton did in the early going to, to mm. bail them out. If you have a great defense like Colorado had with Kale McCarr and the rest, uh, then you can have Darcy Kemper. Not knocking Darcy, but he's just a, a good goaltender that we can handle the job, just the way Aiden Hill is a very good goaltender who won't get you in any trouble. But it's the defense. Like Boston, you know, as great as Olmark, uh, that tandem was, their defense was they're very underrated right charlie mcavoy is like headman or pronger or chara or you know one of those guys and uh hampus lindholm is right behind him and then they have brandon carlo big you know great defenseman matt grizzlick they their defense excellent and and so you think it's marchant and bergeron and uh Krejci and pasternak and it is but it's also because they have a fantastic defense you you have to have that tampa had it you know as much as stamkos and kucherov Defense then, won them the Stanley Cup. And they had uh, Vasilevsky behind him. But who knows? You know, like it's like poor Marty Brudeur had to listen to that all his life. It's like, is it me or is it Scott Stevens and Scott Niedermeyer? Uh, with, with the Leafs, I just want to ask you about them. You you kind of intimated it, but just is Samsonov or Wall the goalie? And how good's their decor? Is it just they add to their defense at the deadline? Like, what do you make of this Leafs team that has always struggled in the playoffs as you Yeah, the, the, the unknowns are Wall and uh, Klingberg. We don't know his health. You know, like he he was banged up a couple of years ago and seemed oh. to fall off the map. Um, the, I don't know that, you know, their goaltending is, uh, is going to cost them, but I don't have, you know, great confidence that it's the next uh, coming of Roy or Brodeur. Um, and as far as... Uh, you know, the defense, I, I did, you know, just listening to Nick and Justin Kiprios and Bourne on the, the show with Elliot and David the other night, you know, I, I kind of agree with Nick. It's just not there yet. It it gives me that feeling, uh, you know, that they needed, they needed Matthias Ekholm. You know, that's why I yeah. think Edmonton, you know, Darnell Nurse and uh, Evan Bouchard, you can just see him. It's getting there and coming in waves with him. Um, and I, I like, you know, even the other night I was out in Calgary watching a preseason game and, they had a situation, 1-1 game. Uh, sorry, they were trailing. one uh, nothing to Calgary in the last minute, and they pulled the goalie, who was Jack Campbell, who was amazing that night. And they sent out Vincent Deharnay. And Deharnay shot to the front of the net, a lightning fast, and right to the front of the net, created the screen for Dylan Holloway to fire huh. the tying goal. Huh. So he, he's got a, you know... He's a big guy, and if he can find a... You know, he still turned over the puck that night a couple of times... Yeah, they have a good defense. And uh, I think, you know, around uh, Quinn Hughes, Vancouver will try to build that. I love what Ottawa's got in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Chikrin and uh, Shabbat and uh, Jake Sanderson as the three key guys. That, what uh, Kevin Bieksa would call the triumvirate. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think 
that that's Ottawa's got a bright future on the blue line. Um, just before I let you go, do you have a Stanley Cup prediction? You've talked about Edmonton. Uh, just maybe who makes the finals? It, it's just well, fun. It's, yeah, I think I'm not, I'm not holding to you on this in in June. No, Ron, don't yeah. worry about it. But oh, and I'm not worried about it. I I, I think Colorado will be right back in the mix. Uh, you know, they fell out of it last year. Um, I do think, uh, like a lot of us, have an eye on New Jersey. You know, how soon can they get to the you know, final, they're, they're right there almost. Uh, Florida will be strong again. Carolina is going to be excellent. So, you know, I, I wouldn't be uh, shocked to see a uh, Carolina-Edmonton Stanley Cup final. Well, thank you so much, Ron, for taking the time and doing this. I know you're a busy man. And uh, I just want to give you the floor. Uh, do, is there anything you want to kind of plug for Hockey Night in Canada? And and is this, is this, is this, are you going to reveal that this is your last year or that yeah, no, no, five more not, years to three go? Years, yeah, the, the Rogers deal goes three years. Yes. So we're all kind of locked in for three years. For three but, years. Yeah, you're always, you know, one on camera away from retired. There you go. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure not, not my choice. <laughs> I'm sure not the case for you, Ron. But yeah. uh, so anything kind of uh, like new at Sportsnet that you want to maybe kind of no, share? No, I, I just looking forward to the outdoor game on the 29th of October is kind of a neat kickstart. Carrie and I had the chance to be out west a lot. Uh, you know, Dana and Kyle got married in Canmore and I was out at Sylvan Lake is where I grew up in Red Deer. So Battle of Alberta is kind of first on the front burner. But uh, yeah, I think there's just tremendous excitement Uh Every team in Canada has at least one player worth the price of admission and often two. So that's a nice way to get through. We've had a beautiful fall here, but snow's about to fly. So get your favorite drink and enjoy. Well, uh, for your sake, Ron, I'm hoping it's a Leafs as, as a Sens fan, it's a Leafs uh, Edmonton final. Cause then you might get like, uh, you know, overtime and a double the paycheck. Cause uh, I'm sure yes. that Sportsnet would really enjoy that. So I hope for your sake, that uh, that's maybe the final and you uh, work uh, as you always do late into June. And uh, thanks so much for, for taking the time and doing this Ron. Pleasure, Alex. Yeah. Lovely.